On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. The confusion is all around us now. I protest about education today that uh, the debate, almost the entire debate, it's about what we do to the kids to get them the way we want. They think uh, when they talk about outcomes, ultimately what they mean is, is it the kind of person we want to make? And the we want is crucial. So I fear that and think that that way of thinking makes us prey to the worst forms of the artificial intelligence outcomes. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio, and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. From the campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. Here's your host, Scott Bertram. Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. On this episode, we'll talk with Matt Spaulding from Hillsdale College about the Declaration of Independence and its importance today. David Harsani from The Federalist on Warren Harding and the ranking of presidents. Paul Ray from Hillsdale on the American founding, and General Robert B. Neller, Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, at his 2019 commencement address at Hillsdale College. First, we're joined now by Dr. Matthew Spaulding, Associate Vice President and Dean of Educational Programs for the Alan P. Kirby Jr. Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship in Washington, D.C., here at Hillsdale College. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Scott. Uh, We are speaking uh, on this Independence Day week, uh, celebrating just a couple of days ago, of course, on on, on July 4th. Lots of parades, lots of fireworks. um, But what we're celebrating, really, is, of course, the birth of our country. And I ask you, where does that really begin? (laughs) Well, that's... That's a great question in and of itself, and, and I would actually back up even slightly from that and mm-hmm. remind people how unusual it is that this country actually has a birthday. Mm. You know, for, you know, uh, think of Germany or France or, or many, essentially every other country in the world, when we ask, when did that country begin, it's actually hard for them to pinpoint a, a specific date. Uh, Germany began in the forest somewhere, you know, the dark forest of Germany somewhere. Uh, France, um, you know, when did when did, you know, when did England begin, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but but what's, what's interesting about this country, which we take for granted, is it began at a certain time, uh, in a certain way, and then we broadly speak of these people that started as as founders. They actually founded something. Uh, which evokes, uh, you know, Rome and Greece and mm-hmm. ancient civilizations. Uh, but, but yes, you see, you're right. This is this country has a birthday, and uh, it's uh, the Fourth of July, when uh, when we declared our independence. Uh, later, of course, we know comes the Constitution. But this this point at which we declared independence uh, is a is a turning point, not merely. Uh, declaring independence, which starts a war, the American Revolution, but it actually 
declares independence, and after you know uh, some decades of thinking this through and developing their own way of thinking and arguing with the British, they declare their their independence in a way that actually lays out a new idea of what government is about, about rights, about consent, and and that idea that that universal declaration to the to the to the people of the world. Uh, really is what creates this idea of America and, and creates this birthday on the 4th of July. Right, so the, de- the Declaration doesn't appeal to a conventional law. It doesn't appeal to a political contract in making its case. So what does it appeal to in, 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 in making the case for independence for, for this new country? Well, so it's... it's um, first of all, I, I always encourage my students to... You know, go back and read it. We we hear kind of the right. ringing tones of the great phrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it evoked in ads and, and pictures and <laughs> and uh, for buying mattresses on sale, whatever it might be. Um, uh, but it, but it's actually it, it goes through. It's, it's it's organized as a normal common law document. Uh, there's a preamble. There's a statement of principles. Then there's a long list of all the nasty things George III is doing, and then it declares independence. Uh, but those first couple of paragraphs, and especially that second, are the most important, because there it, it tells us they're they're writing this uh, to to uh, with a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. So it's got a broader audience, not just England, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to make a broader argument to justify their independence uh, and the grounds upon which they uh, are going to to lay the principles of their government, and they don't appeal to. They they don't appeal to uh, the, the monarchy the their their, their rights of Englishmen uh, they don't appeal to common law or contract but they appeal to the laws of nature and nature's God and here's the here's the turn uh, that's very important it's been this idea exists for a long time in in, in great works of political theory and books and great writers but this is the first time my country has actually put that as the beginning of their country. They're going to appeal to, to nature, to the nature of things, which is, goes back to ancient political thought, to, mm-hmm. to Aristotle, um, uh, but the laws of nature and nature's God. It's reason and revelation. Uh, they're writing in the horizons of a, of a, of a, a Christian world, uh, a, a, a world of which of, um, a revealed God, um, and, and they're going to appeal to those things. So, so they're going to, rather than fight the British king on British ideas, they're actually going to go. Um, they're going to go beyond that, higher than that, and make this broader uh, appeal to to the laws of nature. Nature's God, from which we say that all men are created equal, and because they're equal, it follows that the fair way, the only way, the only legitimate way to proceed is through consent. So it actually is a very compacted. Theory of government, right there in that declaration. I want to come back to the uh, natural law, natural rights idea in in a few moments. But before we move off this, one of the unique things is is again, though this is specifically yes about uh, this this new country and and the king and Britain. It is written in such a way that it it it, it calls to a, a universal standard of justice. It becomes something much larger than just talking about this specific incident in time. Uh, it, it's, it's a broader document in a sense, too. Uh, no, that's, that's absolutely right. And actually, the, both the beauty of it and, in many ways, the complication of it uh, <laughs> are, are contained right there, right? So, on the one hand, it's a very particular nation. It talks about these people. 
Uh, it talks about the particular circumstances that America finds itself in vis-a-vis the British, who, who will become another people. And here's how we're going to build a country. So in, in that sense, it's very particular. But to justify the particular, the circumstances uh, are seen in light of a universal standard. Uh, these laws of nature, nature's God, this idea of human equality, of unalienable rights. So it's that, um, uh, that relationship between those things, a universal claim. We believe that all men are created equal, not just Americans, not just English-speaking people, but all peoples, uh, which means the whole world. The, the notion of humans, humanity, what it means to be human, we are equal in that thing. That's a universal claim. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do everything to bring that about or force that or uh, you know, act upon that in all circumstances, but we're going to show how it's possible here with these people in this particular country. And, and so much of the debate about um, uh, politics, especially about world affairs, is largely uh, in those terms. What does it mean to be both a universal nation on the one hand, but also a universal nation that's also a particular nation that has particular interests, a particular uh, country, uh, particular borders, uh, whatever it might be. And it's, and it's that relationship between those two things that is always uh, really informing our, our politics. Dr. Matthew Spaulding with us, Associate Vice President at Hillsdale, Dean of Educational Programs at the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Uh, so as we reflect back, why is the Declaration still important today? Why do we seem to refer back to it in, in many of our political uh, thoughts and political arguments here, even to this day? Well, so another reason why I think America is unusual, and I would go as far as to say exceptional, is that uh, so much of our law uh, goes back to our original law. And here I'm thinking now of the Constitution, right? We have current laws, but the highest law uh, in, our, in our legal system, the Supreme Court and how our Congress works and how our legal system operates, is the U.S. Constitution. So our laws necessarily point back to the beginning. Uh, but the Constitution really depends upon something... Uh, undergirding that more fundamental uh, which which we were actually referred to as organic law which is uh, the declaration of independence the 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 theory behind the constitution the fact that we are all equal before the law really turns upon a more fundamental question which is we are all equal simply in principle uh, and so really our 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 uh, the whole idea of the american system points back to the dec- the constitution and behind that the declaration and as a result, uh, really all of our politics uh, from the beginning to, to recently is, is a lengthy debate about the meaning of those principles. Uh, we argue about the Constitution and the Declaration all the time, not simply because of the, uh, the Constitution and the courts, mm-hmm. uh, but also just because it, it, it raises these questions. Who are we as a people? What does it mean to be a people? Uh, what do we hold in common? Uh, what are the things that unite us? It's, well, it's, what's great about America is it's not about our bloodline. It's not about where you're from. It's about a common belief in these ideas. Uh, anyone can become an American in theory, uh, but it has something to do with this thing, uh, the principles of the Constitution and the Declaration. 
Whereas, you know, it's hard actually to become a German. You can take sure. generations to become a German, mm-hmm. right? You're never fully a German until you know, <laughs> the sixth or seventh generation, whatever it might be. We're not a blood and soil country. Uh, we're a country about ideas and, and a living out of those ideas through a self-governing republic and the rule of law. But ultimately, that's what, uh, what it's about. And to understand that fully means you have to go to the Constitution. And behind that, uh, since the Constitution is a legal document about, about uh, powers of government, you have to go to behind that to this other document about rights, about what it means to be human, uh, where the rights come from, why is government legitimate, what is its job but to secure these rights, uh, and about what the rights are of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Doctors, and we're always pointing back to that. Dr. Spaulding wanted to ask about uh, all of this in the context of a recent news item. The, the Trump administration is, is uh, planning to launch a new body called the Commission on, uh, on Unalienable Rights, uh, advising the Secretary of State. Uh, they wanted to offer uh, fresh thinking on international human rights and, more specifically, on, on natural law. And so, again, uh, even here, um, we're, we are, again, using language and using ideas, going back to the Declaration. How, how do you think that, uh, that body, uh, when it comes together, might, might influence uh, the way that the Trump administration is, is thinking about human rights and, and thinking about foreign policies? Well, it's, it's, it's on the one hand, on the other hand, <laughs> on the one hand, I'm, I'm always somewhat dubious of such commissions. Sure. Um, uh, they come up uh, in administrations here and there to do something to advise on, you know, something that sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't. It really depends on who's, who's doing it and who's behind it and what they're up to. H- having said that, the, I, the general idea of this one, I think, is, is, a, is a wonderful thing, uh, uh, and to uh, you know, to say new thinking, I think is somewhat of a misnomer. What, yes, what, right. what I think it wants to do is is to um, think anew or, or think again. It's, about, it's to refresh uh, our thinking. Rights. Yes, it's a refresh our thinking, right? To reconstitute it in many ways, given where we are, and the reaction to it in many ways points to the the, the extent of or the level of confusion about what it means to have rights, uh, and and the claim. Uh, is that, well, you only have rights, you don't have rights because you're uh, a particular color or a particular sexual orientation or uh, some combination of, uh, of, of uh, kind of identities. That's not the source of rights, because that ultimately would be arbitrary and um, uh, ultimately uh, a, a question of force. You can assert your rights, your identity rights, because you have more power to do so. And so it becomes a fight between different groups about who has the power to make those assertions. Uh, the claim of the American founding, which is, I think, so important, not only historically uh, uh, in terms of, the, of uh, world history, but in our own history, both left and right, uh, if you look at the founders and Lincoln and Martin Luther King, was that rights have to be grounded in something um, uh, larger than that. Mm-hmm. And this term nature is what uh, is, is a reference to the very nature of being human is what grounds our rights. Um, and, and it needs to have that grounding, to have a mooring, to have a deep uh, protection, which means that government can't take it away, uh, the courts don't give you rights, and some uh, particular majority, which is here today, gone tomorrow, can't give your rights 
or take them away. And so a commission that would remind us of that and point us towards the need to have rights grounded in nature, whether we understand that nature to be uh, theological and in terms of God's creation, or we understand that nature to be philosophical and in, um, in just a classical way of thinking. The law, well, it's the laws of nature, nature's God. Um, pointing towards that, I think, is a wonderful uh, uh, way to remind the American people that they have something quite unique, uh, but also something that is really uh, historically very significant to maintain and preserve uh, human liberty in, in this world in which we live. Dr. Matthew Spaulding, Associate Vice President at Hillsdale College, Dean of Educational Programs for the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., reflecting on the Declaration of Independence. Dr. Spaulding, thank you so much for joining us on the Radio Free Hillsdale. Thank you. Up next, we'll chat with David Harsani of The Federalist about President Warren Harding and the ranking of U.S. presidents. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. Check out our Twitter account, at Hillsdale Radio. Always know when a new episode is live. And we're joined now by David Harsani. You can find him on Twitter, at David Harsani. He's the author of First Freedom. He's a senior editor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com. And also the author of a piece you can find, nationalreview.com, titled, Let Us Now Praise Warren Harding. David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I, I wanted to talk to you about this piece, which is uh, uh, quite interesting and, and, and goes into a little bit about how these presidential lists, uh, what is valued in these presidential lists of best presidents of all time. But I, I have to ask about the opening line, right, in which you say that Warren Harding is America's greatest president. So is there a case to be made, do you believe, or a slight hyperbole? I, I actually think there's a case to be made. Everyone thought I, everyone thought I was joking with that, that lead, but... I think there's a good case to be made that he, listen, he wasn't a perfect president in, in some ways. Uh, he, he wasn't great, but in, in, in the ways that should matter for a presidency, um, his his deference to republicanism, his understanding of the role of the presidency, I think he is one of the great presidents, even though he's always ranked very near the bottom or at the bottom. We'll come back to Harding in a second, but the thrust of the piece then deals with these rankings that come out annually every couple of years. Historians, others get together and rank the president. Somehow people who have been dead for decades end up rising and falling in these lists. What do these lists generally show? Um, who, who are the presidents that are usually around the top ten on these rankings? Well, usually Washington's up there, and uh, FDR is usually up there in Lincoln. So those are the three that are usually... Up top, so I'm not going to, you know, obviously Washington and Lincoln. Uh, we don't have to go through that; they you know, belong up there. But I, I mean, the case for FDR is, is, in my view, just a reflection of what many historians and, and experts on these, uh, you know, who rank, who put these lists together, what they value today in society, and is not really a, a good look at what they did, especially uh, what FDR did, especially domestically. I mean, obviously, World War II is, is a different story. But, uh, you know, then you go further down the top ten, and you have, like, Teddy Roosevelt, usually, who I also think sort of undermined, uh, undermined Republicanism in the presidency, and also Wilson, who is per- should be probably ranked the worst president, at least in my view. So when you look at the presidents who end up, uh, again, toward the top ten, what do you think it says that these uh, historians or the people doing the rankings value in their presidents? Right. 
Well, they, they value activism, right? They value huge technocratic projects. So I think the things they value are things they value in politicians today, people with big plans, with big projects that change the way America functions. And um, those aren't things we should be valuing in a presidency. That's not the president's job. I mean, if, if we're using, if the... If, if, if how we rank them is, is in line and comports with what the Constitution and what the founding had in mind, those are not the presidents that should be at the top of the list. David Harsani with us, his piece at NationalReview.com and in the National Review. Let us now praise Warren Harding. Uh, you write, uh, never do these historians evaluate presidents on their most difficult and often most precarious political decision not to use their power. I, uh, I know Harding is on that list. What other presidents do you think are undervalued by many uh, because of their decisions not to use their power? Well, I think Coolidge, obviously, who who basically just took Harding's policies and, and, and moved moved them forward. And, you know, the 20s, for most of the 20s, we had peace and prosperity in America. It was a great time, and those presidents don't get the due they deserve for that era. Now, Coolidge personally was very different. Harding... Harding, uh, you know, over there were some scandals, and and you know his personal life was a little bit of a mess. But uh, cool, so Coolidge had a very different sort of demeanor. But I think those are the two presidents that are most often overlooked uh, as, as as people who did not use their power, even though they could have. And um, you know, and others who do always use their power are, are, are celebrated. So I think those two, just off the top of my head, I mean, usually the only conservative that really you know, makes it to the top ten is, is Ronald Reagan, which is not how I remember those years. I was pretty young, but I don't remember <laughs> him uh, being so beloved before, but I guess uh, so they needed to put one conservative up there. You, uh, I love this line from the piece, too. It's not the peace, prosperity, and freedom of the jazz age that sends a chill up the leg of our experts. It's the creation of the National Labor Relations Board. It's as if, uh, David, they have to write some sort of summation, you know, as they rank them. And if there's not enough stuff to put in there, they, they have to drop them in the rankings. You have to have created things or done big things or entered wars. That's what they look for. Exactly. I mean, if you have a president that has nothing on his resume other than peace and prosperity <laughs> and not acting, I would put that person up top. Um, obviously, I think Washington belongs up top because he's the, he defined the presidency in many ways, and and uh, and also you know Lincoln because he saved the Union. But after that, you know, I have a lot of problems, especially putting Wilson up there because he, you can directly compare him to Harding. He got us into war. He he got us into a recession, which Harding which Harding ended by doing absolutely nothing but cutting spending. Um, Paul Johnson, a you know pretty famous historian, once noted that that was probably the last time in any Western country that a, that a uh, recession was stopped by laissez-faire, true laissez-faire economics. So, you know, these are things we celebrate. But Wilson, you know, put people in jail, you know, under the Sedition Act. I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a real assault on the First Amendment, and Harding freed those people. So, you know, I think comparing those two is a perfect way in understand, you know, for us to understand how these historians view America and what we should be doing. And it's, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's proper or appropriate to, to think of America in that way. Let's continue that comparison for a second, David, because uh, Woodrow Wilson, as, as many know, is a total mess on, on civil rights. Uh, what, what, what was Harding's record like on, on civil rights? It was excellent. I mean, uh, he was, Wilson wasn't a mess. He was a huge racist. And it wasn't, he had a religious... A religious racism almost, and he segregated the U.S. government and 
and, and, and Harding was out there making speeches against lynching, making speeches against, you know, he couldn't desegregate everything, but he, he tried, and he was, uh, he was a friend of the civil rights move of the early civil rights movement, and um, I don't know, I just say the early one, but that in that era, and uh, he doesn't really get a ton of credit for it. But uh, he was the opposite of Wilson, who 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 really did tremendous damage to the African Americans in this country, and, and has never really faulted for it in any of these lists that I read. Uh, Nor has FDR faulted for throwing throwing you know right. Japanese into internment camps. I mean, it seems like that would be something we should be talking about when ranking a president. Right, and you make, you make that point early in the piece, is that if, if FDR, if what FDR did with the internment camps and, and, and some other things had been done by an Eisenhower or a Nixon, uh, they'd be staring at the bottom of the list for decades to come, and, and it just sort of never sticks to FDR's legacy. Yeah, we'd be talking about reparations right now, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, listen, I, I think that that was actually a somewhat more complicated than people make it out but in the end it is what it is and it was something that had never happened to citizens before or after and certainly we would never contemplate anything like that today so um at least it should be part of the record we can't uh, you know just celebrate a victory in world war ii and i, I and i don't want to get into that either I, I, would other presidents have acted better or not we don't know history is you know history sets that table but it is something that should be discussed David Harsadi, author of First Freedom, senior editor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com, and this piece at National Review, nationalreview.com. Let us now praise Warren Harding. So if you're writing, say, a paragraph summation of why Harding is the best or should be in the top ten of presidents, what, what's your what's your quick summation of Harding for, for people? Huh, well, I think Warren Harding embodied what the presidency should be about as, as far as policy goes by by being humble about the position, I mean, the quote, I think that best, the best summation about his presidency is when he said, I am not fit for the office and should never have been here. If we had people who were reluctant to use power in that way, I think it, it reflects American life and American governance far better than most of the presidents that we celebrate. David Harsani, author of First Freedom. The book is available now. Also senior editor at The Federalist. Head to thefederalist.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at David Harsani, and the piece we've been discussing today is at nationalreview.com. Let us now praise Warren Harding. David, thank you so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next, we'll be joined by Paul Ray from Hillsdale College to discuss the American founding. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Remember, you can listen anytime or hear extended versions of our interviews via our podcast. Find it at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, or Stitcher. Just search for the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. And we're now joined by Dr. Paul Ray, Professor of History, and Charles O. Lee and Louise K. Lee, Chair in the Western Heritage here at Hillsdale College. Dr. Ray, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. We take this segment and, uh, and, and give our listeners... 10 minutes of insight and expertise into something that our faculty members and, and professors know a whole lot about. And this time with Dr. Ray, we talk about the American founding. 
Uh, there's an online course if you're looking for more, online.hillsdale.edu, called American Heritage from Colonial Settlement to the Current Day, and uh, also a book, Republics Ancient and Modern, which sort of brings us up to the American founding. Uh, Dr. Ray, let's, let's start here. The American founding, what made it so unique? Well, the key thing to understand is that in 1776, there were virtually no republics in the world. Yes, there were cantons in Switzerland. Yes, there were the provinces uh, of Holland, uh, or, or, or the Dutch provinces. That's about it. Uh, what you had nearly everywhere were monarchies. That was the general pattern uh, in, in the Middle Ages and stretching into the early modern period in England, in France, in Spain, and I could go on uh, down a long list. Um, republicanism was essentially dead or isolated in peculiar places. Mm. Uh, and democratic republicanism, other than in Switzerland, there wasn't any because the uh, the, the provinces of the Dutch Republic were not democratic uh, at all. So the American Revolution marks a watershed in terms of politics. Um, there had been republics in antiquity. There were a multitude in Greece. We think there were a thousand <laughs> separate poles, uh, each one of them a, a republic. There was the Roman Republic, uh, and it grew to be a great empire. But the Roman Republic destroyed, in effect, the Greek republics by denying them their independence. And the Roman Republic, as it grew large, uh, turned into a despotism, the principate under Augustus and his successors. Uh, and so what happens in America uh, is in part a return to classical antiquity, as I try to show in that, in that book that I wrote, but it's a different kind of republicanism because the ancient republics were republics situated on small territories. Uh, and uh, Rome is the exception that proves the rule. It began as a republic situated on a small territory, and as it expanded, it just, the, the very expansion uh, was fatal to Roman republicanism. And Montesquieu, who is the great inspirer of the American Founding Fathers, uh, publishes a book called The Spirit of Laws in 1748, which everybody reads. gets translated into every European language almost immediately. And it's almost the political Bible of the Americans. Uh, what he says is you can't have a republic on an extended territory. Uh, maybe you can do it by way of having small republics bound together in a federation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Americans take hope from that, except... You know, New York's too large to be a small republic. So is Virginia. So is Pennsylvania. So is Massachusetts. So it, it, it doesn't quite fit. Dr. Paul Ray with us of Hillsdale College on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. So, Dr. Ray, what do the Americans do? What the Americans do is they engage in a great experiment, a really radical experiment, introducing republican institutions into states that are large in territory, leave aside Delaware and maybe Rhode Island, um, and maybe New Jersey, uh, uh, in, into large states. But they also, in 1787, create a government at the national level that's a real government. Mm -hmm. This isn't a, a typical federation where you have independent republics joined together for a common defense. It goes well beyond that. 
the Articles of Confederation may have fit that pattern, but it had failed. Uh, and so what the Americans do is they boldly reconfigure monarchical institutions in such a way as to support a republic. Now, here, too, they have a little encouragement from Montesquieu because he refers to England as a republic disguised as a monarchy Hmm. or a republic in the guise of a monarchy. And so what you get in America is uh, two things. You get federalism. Mm -hmm. Um, They they do as much as they can to move in the direction of small republics um, together in a federation. Even more important, you get a separation of powers uh, modeled on that that Montesquieu had discerned in English practice. Uh, And the notion is that the problems that had uh, dogged uh, large republics, Rome mainly in the past, and Montesquieu had written a little book on Rome and how it went from being a republic to being a monarchy called Mm -hmm. Considerations on on the Causes of the Greatness of the Romans, and their decline, um, you avoid uh, what happened with Rome by creating a structure where most government is at a fairly local level. Uh, The second thing is where there is something at the center, you have um, divided power, and you create a kind of competition or a rivalry between the executive power and the legislative power, and you have the judicial power as something separate that can put its oar in. And then with the legislative power, which is the most, the center of all power, you divide it into two bodies uh, that are going to be in tension with one another. So it's a watershed in human history. It It is one of the great moments in human history. Dr. Paul Ray with us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. We all have this general uh, idea of what happened, right? But how did the population at its core turn from loyal colonists to revolutionaries? Uh, it's really pretty simple. They were in, say, 1762 at the end of the French and Indian War. Uh, n- no one was prouder to be British than the Americans were. They just loved Britain. And now they loved Britain because uh, they uh, identified their local colonial institutions with Britain Hmm. and and with complete justice. When the colonists were sent to America, they were sent to America with a promise that they would keep their rights as Englishmen. uh, And that in practice meant, since you had a 3,000-mile journey to get back to England, that they would make their own decisions about governance in the colonies. So the general pattern was you had a governor appointed by the proprietor of the colony or by the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor had considerable powers, uh, and but you, you, you had an elected House of Representatives or the functional equivalent of it. And the truth of the matter is that from the very beginning, the colonies were quasi-independent. Uh, they ran their own affairs uh, in, uh, with some consultation with the king and the Privy Council and so forth back in England. But the distance and the time it took to get from one shore to another and back uh, meant that there was very little leverage uh, on the part of of the British king, parliament, and so forth. Uh, After the French and Indian War, a group of young men came to power in England 
who wanted to change that. Hmm. They feared that the colonies were drifting towards independence when, in fact, they'd always been quasi-independent, and they wanted to rein them in. Uh, And one of the ways the colonies maintained their quasi-independence is they paid the governor. He got his salary from the colony, and the colonial assemblies voted him a salary. So if he came with instructions from the Privy Council to do this, to do that, and do the next thing, and the colonists didn't like what he intended to do, he didn't get paid. And these were plum patronage jobs Mm -hmm. handed out by the party in power in England in the name of the king. And the people they sent out there wanted that salary desperately. So they came with instructions from London they ignored the instructions, sucked up to the colonists, and got their salaries. Well, the move was to make the salaries paid from London and to tax the Americans to provide the money for the salaries. (laughs) Well, the Americans had never uh, had a tax that was imposed upon them by anyone other than their colonial assemblies. And the political class in America, the people who peopled the, the, uh, the assemblies, they knew what the British government was up to, and they weren't going to put up with it. So what they did is they resisted, and the British government dug in its heels. And then it sent an army uh, uh, and, and suspended in Massachusetts the colonial assembly, mm-hmm. uh, so-called intolerable acts. Um, And the Americans chose to keep their independence. So in some sense, this was a revolution against a revolution. That is to say, the British government planned a revolution uh, to impose strong controls on the American colonists, and the American colonists said, no, we want the institutions that we have. But gradually, as they began to articulate an argument in defense of those institutions, They had to turn away from British tradition, English law, promises of the crown, to an appeal to nature and to natural rights. And when they did that, this revolution against a revolution became a genuine revolution. Um, So how how did did the colonists turn into revolutionaries? The British turned them into revolutionaries. (laughs) Um, uh, As stupid a series of governmental acts as one can imagine. Dr. Paul Ray, professor of history, and Charles O. Lee and Louise K. Lee, chair in the Western Heritage here at Hillsdale College. Again, the online course, American Heritage from Colonial Settlement to the Current Day, is available at online.hillsdale.edu. And uh, the book, Republics Ancient and Modern. For a little more information, Dr. Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Up next, we hear from General Robert B. Neller at his 2019 commencement address at Hillsdale College. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. We hear now from General Robert B. Neller, Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, at his 2019 commencement address here on the campus of Hillsdale College. General Neller previously was Commander of Marine Forces Command and Marine Forces Central Command. 
Deputy Commanding General of One Marine Expeditionary Force during Operation Iraqi Freedom, Assistant Division Commander for First and Second Marine Divisions, and President of Marine Corps University. He also served in the Policy Division of Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe and Director of Operations of the Joint Staff in Washington, D.C. General Neller is a native of East General Neller is a native of East Lansing, Michigan, and his son Brett graduated from Hillsdale College in 2006. This again, General Robert B. Neller from Hillsdale's 2019 commencement. I don't give speeches, um, so I'm going to ask permission from Dr. Arne to walk around and, and talk to you a little bit. But uh, to he and, and uh, Mr. Sajak, new chairman of the board, I did, I did consider the offer you made me, Dr. Arne, because he thinks so much of you seniors that he said, just take them all and enlist them in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I had you for a second, though, didn't I? For me, this is uh, probably not a normal thing. Yesterday and today, I was presiding and, and giving an oath of office commissioning about 35 officers in the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps. Yesterday at College Station, Texas A&M, and today here at Hillsdale. And I'll be very frank to the, to the seniors here. Uh, speaking to this, to this audience, I'm a little bit nervous, and the reality is you're probably not going to remember a single thing I say. So I will try to endeavor to break that likelihood, but uh, as I thought about it, you know, given a, doing a commissioning and talking to those that are going to follow a path that I've followed for the past 40 years is something you would expect me to be able to do. The life that, that I chose actually 44 years ago, almost to a day, commissioned a, a second lieutenant, was not my plan. My plan was to do my three years and then go out and find my fortune elsewhere, and then over time, this didn't become what I did, it became what I am. And I think I speak the same for the faculty. If you become a teacher, eventually teaching is not what you do, it's just what you are. But as I started to think about it, I, I realized as I was going through the process at A&M and here today, and watching it and looking at the faces of the, those who were commissioning it, this really is not a whole lot different than a commissioning. And, and let me tell you why I feel that way. Those, those Officers, now officers, were students, and like you, they're beginning the next path in, in their life. Uh, they've completed the rigors of an academic institution. You're going to be awarded a degree, and with that degree becomes, comes responsibility. And at those same events, the one thing I also noticed is the parents. So I believe that the great majority of you hopefully are blessed by having somebody here to thank you afterwards and you're going to get your degree and they're going to come down and, and they're going to look at you and they're going to hug you and say, I'm so proud of you. And you're going to feel good about that. And you should feel good about that. I don't want you to ever forget how that feels to have that pride of your parents or grandparents, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, whomever, congratulate you on this day. But that's just a first step. And I guess I would ask the seniors, we recognize the parents, I'd ask you to join me in a round of applause for your parents and your family that are here to support you today.
Now your job is to go out and get a job with health insurance. <laughs> so what am I going to say to you that would be different than what I would say to a group of young men and women that are putting on the uniform to defend their nation and take on the demands of that profession? I don't really think it's any different. And I don't think it's any different than what you've heard here while you've been a student at Hillsdale. I think the qualities and the attributes that make people successful, I think if you talk to Mr. Sajak or all the other people that are here, or the Van Andels or all the people in business and the very successful people who rightfully and properly support this university, this college, there's no rocket science here. So in the Marine Corps, they, they tell you to keep it in threes because people can remember three things. So let me give you three thoughts. Effort matters. You wouldn't be sitting here today getting ready to come across this podium to receive a degree if you were not, exert, if you were not able to exert effort. But that effort doesn't end today. In fact, the demands of your effort are going to be even greater. There's a huge amount of talent among you. Your talent is only going to result in achievement if you're willing to put in the effort. And so thus far you have, and I know you'll continue to do that. But the demands on your effort as you compete against people outside this college and around the world are going to require more effort. The United States is in a competition around the world with others. It will take our effort to come out on top. The second thing, there will be adversity. There may have already been adversity in your life. Uh, your parents will probably could tell you about adversity. Maybe it was adversity that they've dealt with, somebody. But there will be times in the future when things won't go well. It may be professionally, it may be personally. There will be days when you'll be challenged. But your measure as a man or woman of virtue and character is going to be graded on or evaluated on how you persevere. You can't quit. You can't quit. I mean, the Marine Corps teaches us that. You can't quit. You figure out, you adapt, you overcome, you persevere. You figure out a way to solve the problem. And you've got all these people that Dr. Arn talked about, friends of the college, your parents, your friends, your family, your fellow classmates, who are going to be there to help you figure it out. You're never alone. You're never alone. So we have to overcome. We have to persevere. And the third thing is character counts. Character counts. And that's what this college is really all about. This college is all about character. I mean, you're smart, you, you're academically qualified, but I think the thing that may give you an edge is the discussions you've had about what's right, what's wrong, what's honor, what's integrity, what's virtue. What is a good man or woman speaking well? What is accountability and responsibility? So all those character traits, you think about the person in your life, they may be sitting in this room with us. They may be in the faculty here. They may be friends, they, but they're probably family members, coaches, teachers, people that, admire, that you admire, that inspired you over the years to get you to this point today. And they had all those qualities. qualities. They worked hard. They exerted effort. They were men and women of virtue and character. They were humble. They were respectful. They did everything to make everybody else better. It was never about them. It was always about the team. 
So character counts. So that's my message. Effort matters, character counts, and we have to persevere in all things that we do. In closing, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today, and I congratulate you all on your achievement, and I congratulate your families for their support. Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, they're going to say something about us. And the first part of that sentence has already been written. It's going to say your name, your hometown, and it's going to say Hillsdale graduate. And then there's a space. There's a space. And somebody's going to write something in that space. And that you own that space. So what do you want it to say? This college has given you the foundation to fill that space in the right and proper way. And I know you're going to take advantage of that. So make it count. Make it count. I'm very proud to be here with you today. Again, to the families, thank you for your support, uh, for your, uh, your graduate. Uh, I know they are going to need your help in the future. And I know you'll be there for them. And for all of you that are graduating, best of luck. And uh, I wish you all well in whatever endeavor you take on in the future. Thank you very much. Again, that's General Robert B. Neller, Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, at his 2019 commencement address here at Hillsdale College. That will wrap up this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to Matt Spaulding, Associate Vice President and Dean of Educational Programs for the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. David Harsani, Senior Editor at The Federalist. Paul Ray, Professor of History at Hillsdale College. And General Robert B. Neller. Remember, you can hear new episodes of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour every week on this station. You also can find extended versions of some of our interviews or listen anytime to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour podcast. Find it at SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. Just search for the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. You can follow the show on Twitter at Hillsdale Radio or on Facebook at the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. To find out more about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu. Until next week. I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.